0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, welcome to the new European podcast. My name's Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Greetings. I'm Cash Boyle. Hello. Oh. How is everyone? Not too bad. How are you? I am. I I, you know, I feel a little bit under the weather. Um, but I'm all right. I'm all right. I'll battle through.
2: Um, not
3: like COVID under the weather, like no. Nah, nah, nah.
1: Yeah, just not definitely not COVID. I'm not That's I'm good. not COVID, although a lot of people are. we'll get to that. Yeah. Um it's been a bumper week and we've had and there's actually been some news to smile about. Um so we will get to the news, of course. Um very soon and likewise go elsewhere etc etc um and we've got two cracking guests this week uh john kampfner is going to join us at um in 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 a few minutes um and he's going to talk about armin lachette the new leader of uh, germany's cdu party and then after that we're going to be joined by glenn o'hara who's going to talk to us about kia starmer um both have got pieces in the edition of the New european this week on sale now go out and grab it um Mm. as soon as you've listened this fine podcast but let's jump straight in guys i mean the the big the big news is the inauguration of course uh cash what what do you think joyous
3: wasn't it i loved it i really did it really sort of um as a non-american i know matt said in a previous podcast he's he spent a lot of time in america and it's up there with his favorite countries in the world um sort of to obviously to visit and everything and i i'd be sort of similar to that in the sense i think america for all it's kind of well well, for all of it, everything, let's say, it's, it's actually an incredible, an incredible place. And so uh-huh. as a non-American watching the inauguration yesterday, I felt a real sense of hope, even though it didn't pertain specifically to my country and my nationality. And and obviously there weren't any uh, people there in terms of members of the public. And that made it a completely different event. But just seeing the overwhelming tone of optimism and desire for sort of the collective desire for change. Just really, it almost made me emotional sort of watching it because it wasn't sort of, um, particularly like Joe Biden's speech, Kamala Harris, um, particularly sorry, particularly Joe Biden's speech. You, you didn't feel like those were empty sentiments whatsoever, you felt he felt every sinew of emotion taking the post. Which I course, thought
1: that yeah. I agree completely, and I thought that. On, on the day that the capital was stormed, of course, which we spoke about, I thought he spoke very well then. Yes. And I thought, I thought his, um, his words uh, at, at the inauguration were, were, were brilliant, actually. And mm-hmm. I also thought he delivered them with a, with a confidence and a drive, which perhaps we've not seen from him prior to this. Matt, do you think this is, a, this is a, a candidate that a lot of people, even from his own side, have had some concerns about sort of picking up the mantle now?
4: I feel a bit differently, actually, because oh, I <laughs> here we go, That's the Contrarian. <laughs> no, I'm <mean, laughs> actually mean, I'm a big Trump a fan.
3: No, I agree. So this
4: is this is it. I I, uh, I mean, I, I I like and admire Biden greatly. I just don't think he's a great orator. But he's never been a great orator. Oratory has never been his his greatest skill. His greatest skill has always been as a as a backroom as a backroom dealer, as a as a, a deal maker, a person who brings people together. And and it's from that that I would draw the greatest hope from them. the team that he's putting in around him. Mm. He seems to be putting in a, a, a very high quality. I know that there's some people, um, particularly on the on the left of the Democrats, who are deriding it as the third Obama administration. A lot of these people heading up departments um, were previously the deputy heads of those departments under under Obama. But these are, these are skilled people with expertise in their area, which after the last four years is is the least we could have hoped for, but that's that's what we're getting i mean I thought his his speech absolutely ticked all the all the right boxes, both in what it said and and, and who he didn't say mm. uh, shall we say um I, I thought he stumbled a few times, but you know he he does he he's someone who who had a speech impediment uh, that he he overcame while he was young, so that's understandable um so you know it didn't bring a tear to my eye, but um certainly seeing uh Donald trump jetting off to Florida, hopefully uh, not to be seen for some time, did. And and
1: he's persisting with the use of YMCA, isn't he?
4: <laughs> I don't think he knows who the village people are and no, what they No, I represent. don't think so
3: either. Did you sort of hear at the end of his speech where he just said, have a great life?
4: Have a great <laughs> life. It's weird. We
3: brilliant. will be back in some form, which made me think of like him reincarnating like, in a Voldemort kind of style. Like, you know, <laughs> sort of like like emerging in the back of like Quirrell's headscarf. Um, and man. That's what I mean. It's just um, but I actually thought I wanted to pick up very quickly on a point that Matt just made, which which was a great one, which is that I agree I agree with you Matt in the sense that I don't think he's necessarily a great orator orator. Sorry, he's not necessarily someone that oozes charisma, but I think so much of politics is about having the right person at the right time. And given what has come before, I think people will happily in in the main happily sacrifice you know a degree of of that to have someone of more substance and someone of genuine empathy and compassion who you know no one can deny it the numbers don't lie he has played the long game he wants this Mm -hmm. and I think because of that I think those shortcomings are very very true but I think Joe Biden is the right person at the right time given what's just gone before.
1: Agree agree completely I think that's absolutely right and Yeah, all right. I mean, Matt's correct in saying he's not the right orator. I think what I was taking from his speech was that it was well constructed. Mm -hmm. It didn't end with have a good life. You know, Mm -hmm. it it was it was very different from the last four years. And I'm actually very hopeful because what you tend to see is 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 British politics. Definitely. You know, the the, the wind that that comes from um, across the ocean with regards to political change tends to wash upon these shores. And I think that Biden, you know, while, while Trump was in charge in America, that gave a, a license to some extent for, for a, a, a version of that kind of populism to, uh, to, to, to breed in this country. And I think that with, a, with an adult in the White House, um, a, a sensible, experienced politician... Um, I think that that is going to have a a positive impact on on our government and, and, you know, not just now in the short term, but in the longer term as well. And I think that can only be something, uh, a a good thing. I actually think think that's something we'll
4: draw upon in this podcast, actually, um, in in two ways. When we talk about Armin Lachette in in Germany and how the CDU could have... um, Chosen uh, a much more traditionally conservative character, and of course, then we'll be talking about Keir Starmer afterwards, which I, I suspect will be picking up a lot of the same points on.
1: Well, sure. what there's a good there is a good segue, Matt, and perhaps in that case, we shall move on to some rather darker news, and that is, of course, the really worrying um increase in 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 the death toll with regards to coronavirus. I think we had um obviously there will be newer figures by the time you hear this but i think the latest to another record these these awful records that keep coming and coming we had um i think 1800 deaths uh, on on wednesday recorded in 24 hours of wednesday this week which is horrific obviously every single one of them a, a, a tragedy and i guess now do you think we're seeing cash the um the the the, the you know the the loosening of those Um, rules over the Christmas period and the fact also that they were only tied into the very last minutes. A lot of people had already made plans and I expect a lot of people went sod it. Do you think we're we're paying the the most terrific price for that now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the second wave was always an inevitability uh, regardless but then it's almost like the loosening of the restrictions, the nature in which that was done so late in the day, coupled with people's general apathy and lack like sort of decreasing desire to actually listen to the government because they've been so inconsistent. I think those things contrive to almost create a perfect storm or an imperfect storm, if you like, of a second wave, but like a second wave on steroids, mm-hmm. um, where you've got a situation where the second wave was unavoidable, um, of course, but the actual numbers involved do feel very attributable to a number of factors that totally and wholeheartedly are due to the government's negligence stroke inconsistent decision making stroke indecisive action, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. And unfortunately, um, you know, as much I think that the vaccine program has been sort of rightly lauded as um, sort of its rollout is seems to be going pretty well. And that's something that rightly should be commended. But that is one very, not very small, but that is one good point or one reprieve in an otherwise really horrific statistic, statistical situation that we're seeing now in terms of the daily deaths. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I think it is absolutely like horrifying, and I do think the second wave has become almost a steroid-infused version of what it could have been because of all the bad decisions or lack of decisions that were made previously.
4: Matt? Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. Well, what I find um, quite interesting, and it's something that's been remarked upon a lot on um, social media, um, is it's... It's very much a numbers game, the way that this has been um, reported, um, particularly by the, the major broadcasters. And that's understandable because they have not been given any access to uh, COVID wards. And that's understandable because um, COVID wards don't want BBC and, and ITV journalists poking around there with mic booms and, and cameras. But um, it's a, a unique tragedy. In that we are purely seeing it through stats and not, yeah. and not names and families and lives and experiences. Absolutely.
1: Um, I mean, imagine you know, eighteen hundred people dying in a day. That's that's three jumbo jets falling out of the is. sky.
3: And you can I just sort of like jump in there because actually, with you know, my regular job as a reporter on on my patch, there are two major hospitals. Um, I mean, it's not a secret where I work. So, you know, it's Queen's and Romford and King George Hospital in Goodmays, and they fall under a particular trust. And we've actually had like a lot of back and forth discussions with this trust about a level of access because our point as reporters, and it's true, is that we want to, There's no, there are no COVID sceptics on our team. We all want to demonstrate and show, and through our reporting, the severity and the seriousness of this pandemic through, as Matt sort of said before, and Richard, you agreed with, through actual visual you know visual sort of ex- a visual insight let's say because if you as matt said if you look at a pandemic or if you report on a pandemic purely through the statistical not only does that give naysayers an avenue through which to say well the statistics are being manipulated for x y and z reason mm. it also depersonalizes it and sort of almost makes it dehumanizes it Although, yeah know but whereas if for example we've had a lot of discussions with this particular trust about having that degree of access because we want to show as you said we want to show you know that each day it's the equivalent of three people in you know three jumbo jets worth of people dying rather than 1800 which is obviously still a huge number but we want to create that that visual for that exact reason and it's very frustrating because actually while i understand that they don't want you know mics and journalists and everything Sw- like you know swanning around I-, I i completely respect that but actually perhaps having that degree of access would show the public the impact of this pandemic in a real visceral way that perhaps is required
1: absolutely and it guards against the idiots who are saying the, the wards are empty and all, all yeah. that kind of thing i mean there has been a couple of reports i know sky news certainly have done a couple where they have gone in uh to the wards and we have Obviously, we're not seeing patients, but we're at least seeing that these beds are full. That these there was one on a where a children's ward had been taken up, in, you know been taken over by by COVID ICU. And I think um, I, I do think it's important, but I, but equally, I can see I can see uh, both sides both sides of that that story. And 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 this, you know, it, it really just gets grimmer and grimmer every day. And I think we're expecting uh, we're recording this before. Priti Patel's press conference but um, the, the expectation is as far as uh, I've been told that, that pretty will love this kind of thing won't she she's going to put the country on a final warning and there could be even even stricter rules ahead anyway uh, we've been joined by John Kavner John welcome hi there um and uh i think i think matt is going to chat to you mainly because he's a bit of an expert on Well, he's more of an expert than i am let's put it that way
4: i mean it's all relative (laughs) Um, it's it's great to have you on john um particularly because we sometimes get a little bit of you guys you say you're pro-european but i bet you can name everybody who stood in the democratic primaries this time around but you don't pay any attention to what's going on in the parties that matter in europe so this weekend, just gone, the CDU, who are Angela Merkel's party and head up the grand coalition, the GroKo there, they have selected their new leader. Um, I just jotted down who, who I thought these were to a, a non-expert audience. So you, you tell me if you think these are wrong and then tell us what happened. I thought Armin Lachette, he's Angela Merkel. Uh, Norbert Rutgen, he's Angela Merkel, but what about women and young people? And uh, Friedrich Merz, he's David Davis. Would that be fair?
5: That's pretty darn good, I would say. And I would also say that's very unrepresentative of the great British public, as you say, uh, including uh, the pro-European British public. And I was just reminded of a little um, thing that I was when I was living and working in Bonn, the old sleepy capital of West Germany. Uh, before any listener was born in the um, mid 80s and um i uh, was watching i had a day off and i was watching daytime tv german daytime tv which ain't great but it had um, a quiz show one of those uh, press the buzzer first person on and one of the questions was who is the leader it must be right at the late 80s who is the leader of the british labour party opposition right this is not even government this is opposition and they all went neil kinnock um, and can you you know compare and contrast that with a uh, any british audience could it ever name pretty much any european leader and it certainly couldn't ever um name any opposition leader but hey i digress
4: well, I, I had that same experience a few years ago in a hotel room in, in Cologne, watching kind of like a German spitting image, but not quite. And they were satirising mm. Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, and at no point feeling they need to explain to their audience who either of those characters were. which mm. shows them the greater sophistication, I think, in, in Germany, uh, in, in how they, they, they look abroad. Um, well, I think, it's
5: funny, I think they yeah, I think what's happened now, I mean, during the Brexit process... Um, from 2016 until pretty much now Germans were absolutely fixated by it it was always on the news and they loved all the parliamentary stuff um and will Theresa May prevail in a particular vote they all had terrible imitations of John Burko going order order <laughs> like this Can you imagine doing that with a German accent it's not great and um uh, so they they really and I remember a, a Berlin friend of mine saying um, that she had cancelled her subscription to Netflix because she got all the entertainment she needed watching the British Parliamentary Channel. And I thought, oh, my God, is that what we're reduced to as sort of you know, cheap, you know, cheap version of, of, of entertainment off the back of our completely dysfunctional um, and childish politics? But I don't think they feel like that now. They just sort of feel like Britain, what, you know, where's Britain?
4: Yeah. Um tell us what's happening in the CDU. So Angela Merkel, she is uh stepping down. There's a general election on September the 26th. She absolutely is going this time. We we know that. She had an anointed successor. That didn't quite work out. And so they had to choose between these three candidates this weekend just gone. What what happened?
5: Yeah, well I might as well go for my lunch because you know it all anyway. <laughs> um, um so that's exactly what happened. Um Merkel, it's it's we're now in January 2021, and it's hard to uh, recall, but in January 2020, Merkel was absolutely regarded as washed up. She was regarded as beyond her sell-by. Everybody was desperate to see her go. She, she was sort of accused of slowing everything down, not really. <clears throat> so you just have that picture, plus her. what I think was was incredibly generous and ultimately inspired, decision to let in 1 million refugees um, in um, uh, 2015, had in the short and medium term had politically backfired on her uh, because of the rise of the far right AFD. Anyway, she was forced into pre announcing her retirement, a bit like Tony Blair was forced was sort of uh, uh, strong armed by Gordon Brown into into doing the same. She did so reluctantly, and she appointed stroke anointed, had elected um, a successor, a woman by the name of Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, otherwise known as AKK, who turned out to be a bit of a disaster. Um, She lumbered into all kinds of situations. She um, got sort of messed around by various regional leaders and just sort of lost her, lost her mojo and lost her confidence and she herself stood down. So the CDU were in a pickle. They should have um, sorted all this out last April, but then COVID intervened and they kept on postponing what they hoped would be um, a physical conference, an in-person conference to choose the successor. And then they realized we're not going to get this done in a hurry. The elections are coming in September, so we better do it. So they did a digital conference uh which i watched uh, it was not not uninteresting but i suppose you have to be a bit of a nerd to to watch this kind of thing there were three candidates as you say armin lachette who's the uh prime minister the premier of north rhine westphalia the most populous uh of the 16 lender of the 16 regions in germany uh, a pretty uncharismatic type of figure who was seen very much as merkel's appointee um, then there's this guy, Friedrich Merz, who is, I would say, sort of more like Berlusconi, but without the bunga bunga. Um, so a sort of um, politician turned businessman turned, let's have lots of right wing definition with a bit of populism. Um, I mean, not not sort of Trumpian in any way. He was perfectly sort of respectable and proper. And I don't think he would have undermined democracy, but he was certainly on the right. And his argument was and it and it has its merits the cdu is a conservative party a seat center right party let's act a bit more like conservatives rather than a sort of wishy-washy centrist party and in that respect he is right because merkel had taken the cdu into the middle her argument is that's where german governments should belong and in any case that's where the votes are and that's served her pretty well in 16 years and then norbert rutgen who is the sort of Darling of um, foreign broadcasts. He's a, he's a polyglot. He speaks very polished English. He's always on the airwaves. He was chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He's a really uh, good guy. He had a falling out with Merkel uh, when he was environment minister and she got rid of him and he was always trying to get his own back on her. Uh, he, he would have been great, but he was very much the third candidate. He got knocked out in the first round. And in this two-way ding-dong, Germany went for the safety first candidate in Laschet. uh, which, given um, how much they're going to miss Merkel and given how petrified they are, just like everybody else is over COVID and other things in the world, was probably always going to be the result.
4: Um, what a lot of people won't understand is they, they think, right, well, this guy then is going to be the party's candidate to be chancellor come September. But well, that's not guaranteed, is it?
5: No, it's not. And um he opinion polls show him not particularly galvanizing the public um and there are a lot of he only won it was a bit like the brexit result there was just it was 52 point something versus 47 point something so a tiny bit bigger majority uh, as um that he won but basically the cdu was as good as split between him and the let conservatism be conservatism faction um which isn't going to be particularly enthusiastic about supporting him. And he hasn't had to use an awful phrase, a good COVID. Um, people regarded, have regarded his leadership in North Rhine-Westphalia as, as pretty slow and bumbling. So um, there were two other candidates. One was his running mate, um, Jens Spahn, the health minister. Uh, he made a pretty bad speech at this conference um and is young and people don't think it's going to be the right time for him he's a sort of cleverer version of matt hancock um, but you know uh, but that same sort of slightly sort of tiggerish um character and uh, the other one is is the fascinating one he's called marcus zerder um, he is the premier of bavaria and bavaria has always been sort of semi-detached from uh, the rest of Germany, Um, a lot of Germans, Berliners and people living in Hamburg and Cologne and the Rhineland, they don't really sort of trust Bavarians. They always think they're much more like Austrians and not quite sort of um, uh, wouldn't imagine a Bavarian to be German leader. And there hasn't been one um, for that very reason. So um, Söder on the one hand has this big fiefdom um, that is Bavaria, super wealthy, uh, large state. It's the kind of political perch a lot of people would be very happy with. Does he want to potentially throw that in um, uh, for the much messier job of German Chancellor? Um, and will he, won't he get it? It does depend. There are two big regional elections in Germany in the middle of March. They will make their decision pretty shortly after that. If the CDU bomb, if they tank in those two regional elections, um, then I think there'll be quite a strong move to get this guy Zerda in. And whatever happens, the general election will take place on the 26th of September, the CDU uh, in this last four years has been run by uh, the government's been run by the CDU and by the Social Democrats in a grand coalition. Um, That's unlikely to happen next time around. And intriguingly, and excitingly, perhaps, it's most certain. It's most likely to be a CDU coalition with Greens, um, and the Greens are in a very strong second place. Um, they're quite a moderate Green leadership. Uh, some of the party members are anything but moderate, but they are quite moderate and seem very over eager to compromise on stuff. But there's never been a CDU Green leadership. There was once an, uh, a Social Democrat Green one around the turn of. The century in sort of Blair-Schroeder time. Um, and so I think it sounds an oxymoron, but I think German politics is going to get exciting again.
4: Yeah, I think that the Greens are going to have one leader stroke candidate this time. I think previously, rather like the Green Party in England, they've always had two figures at the top, but I think they're going to change that, aren't they?
5: Yeah, and they and the two co-leaders at the moment, um, one of them is called Robert Harbeck, and the other uh, is called Annalisa Baerbock. Um, and they're both really um, fascinating and I think impressive figures. The problem is going to be they both want it and that you're going to have a bit of a Blair Brown problem here, I think. Whoever doesn't get it is going to feel quite resentful um, of who's going to be their candidate. But I mean, either way, it seems very unlikely that the Greens would win outright, not impossible, but I think pretty unlikely that the Greens will, would become the, the, the main party. So as the number two party, and particularly as, uh, if they perform well as the number two party, they're going to get a lot of seats in the cabinet. And uh, so watch out for both of them and other Greens becoming very senior ministers in the next CDU-led government, if that's what happens.
4: Well, it's good to have an Annalisa at the top of politics who is a fascinating character, which leads me on to <laughs> fi- finally the, uh, the Labour's traditional uh, sister party in Germany, the, the SPD. Um, are they now a spent force?
5: Um, they've been going down for a long time. <clears throat> the They suffer a, a problem around are they the party of the in a way it's a sort of bit of a red wall issue um they're a uh, the party of are they the party of the sort of traditional to use clichés here but the traditional white working class post industrial small medium sized towns who are more socially conservative more anti immigration that side of things or are they the party of younger, more urbane, more urban, more multicultural um, generation. Most of that latter lot have gone to the Greens. Um, And for this SPD to modernize is going to be a real problem. They've had some pretty um, unimpressive candidates in recent years. The candidate for these elections is the present finance minister, a guy by the name of Olaf Scholz. Uh, who is kind of solid. Um, he's a sort of, oh, I don't know, a sort of centre-left version of Philip Hammond. Um, again, which doesn't sort of, um, in, in, you know, people are not going to be throwing out the bunting uh, if, if he became Chancellor, but um, he's been a perfectly solid finance minister.
4: Well, with that, we should probably let you go, John. Uh, the piece on Armin Lachette and the CDU is available in this week's New European, which is on sale now. Uh should probably give you a book a plug, shouldn't we? Why the Germans Do It Better uh, is available now. And uh, excellent read. Thank,
5: thank, you, thank you very, very much. much. Thank you. <laughs> thank very you, nice George. to talk to you. Take that care. Was, that was, thank I, you.
4: I
1: actually learned something there. It's not often that I learn something <laughs> on oh, this podcast. As John Major
5: might say, heaven forfend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off, guys. Thank you very much, yeah, John. John. An absolute
1: pleasure, as always. And by absolute m- magic of Matt Withers's planning, I do believe we're now joined by by glenn O'Hara. glenn are you there? You need to
2: unmute me, but I am here. Yep. Oh, there, <laughs> there
1: he is. is. There he is. We've managed to go this far. Thank you very much for coming on, and thank you also for writing uh, this wonderful piece in the in the New European this week about. Kia Storm, and we've just been talking mm-hmm. about German politics. I think me and Cash are probably a lot more comfortable talking about British politics, so maybe we can get a bit more involved <laughs> now, that <you're> a, <laughs> now that you're here. Give us a little, because this is kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a sort of foot on the ball piece about where we're at with, with Kia now, isn't it? Just give us your view on on, on Kia's um, start as Labour leader and, and what, you know, what you think he needs to do next.
2: Yeah, I think I can give you probably a pretty crude uh summation at the start which is hey not bad uh as a university lecturer i suppose this is a b plus report this is a kind of 60 67 68 report which is he's avoided lots of obvious bear traps he looks pretty much the part uh voters are willing to give him an in they're willing to give him a listen but there's just such a huge long way to go i mean he started out in a hole where you know he was looking at a ping prick of light about a mile upwards wasn't he and um he's done okay, but I think his approach, kind of cautious, crab like, efficient, competent, that's got minuses as well as pluses, which means you can get caught out with just trying to follow the news rather than kind of make the news. Do that's think- my kind of that's my kind of half term report.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I would I would agree with that. And I, I and I am a I've, I've sort of followed Kia's career quite closely over the years. And I think um I think that that's an absolutely fair uh, judgment, a B minus. A B-. But do you think he's perhaps been hamstrung by the colossal events that have happened in the last year? I mean, you know, c- coming in, like you say, the, the party was a shambles with its previous leader. Um, I think we can pretty much all agree on on that. And, mm. uh, you know, he had a heck of a lot of, much like Biden's going to have to do, a heck of a lot of rebuilding to do um, within his own party, of course, Keir Starmer, a lot of, a lot of changes that needed to be made. And, and and then, you know, once he's got his feet under the, the desk, then suddenly we're plunged into a, a pandemic when certainly for the first few months, it was actually quite tricky to oppose the government, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, he's been given really an impossible job, which he's made a fairly good fist of, as we're saying, with, you know, some caveats. This is a, a national crisis that really is without... Without real parallel, as a historian myself, since the Second World War, you, le- you were looking at a potential No Deal Brexit, which we avoided, but still a very thin Brexit at a time of a pandemic, which is just punching a hole in the economy, you know, a mile wide, like nothing we've known since even 1929 to 32 is, you know, is is a kind of good comparator, the the Great Depression kind of uh, kind of levels of economic destruction. So it's been very difficult for him to get a hearing, but on the other hand. Uh, I suppose I started off slightly Starmer sceptic myself as an individual. He's done a fairly good job of getting a hearing. You know, most voters know who he is. Most voters quite like what they see, although they'd like to see more. He's been able to make some good criticisms of the government, although, of course, it's made itself into a target about a barn shaped target with its very slow response Mm. to some elements, some public health elements of the pandemic. And he's, as I say, he's looked like he knows what he's doing. Of course, one of the things is he's run a big organization before. So he knows about the news and he knows about management and he knows also what can what can plug into people's concerns. But, yeah, this is like, you know, Attlee taking over in the late 30s. The Labour Party is a complete basket case. The, the Europe and the world are in a terrible state and it's a huge challenge. But look at Attlee, he's still leader 20 years later
1: yeah yeah and uh, d- just one thing that we touched on slightly when we were doing the news at the top of the pod before you joined us Glenn was mm-hmm. um uh, was <clears throat> me suggesting that um the uh the wind of of change from america often often comes uh over to our shows as well and do you think that that, that Biden therefore taking over in the white house um will uh will will be favorable for for care?
2: To some extent I mean you're right historically we get Kennedy and Johnson coming in and then we get Harold Wilson in 64 and then we get Clinton of course in 93 and then we get Blair and Brown very much learning from his example so usually historically we would expect now a left government but I think it's a left-leaning government but I think it depends on how the Biden experiment goes really because we just don't know yet whether the Biden Uh, period is going to be an interregnum, it's going to be between two big right populisms, two very strong, very right-wing, very populist presidents, or whether the Biden uh, period is going to herald something new, something a bit more like starmerism, if we can call it that, calm, efficient, expert, talking about unity as as, as, uh, Joe Biden does. I think we, uh, like all boring historians like me, say it's too early to tell If the Joe Biden's government on the back of vaccination, on the back of a much stronger public health effort and just being organised, just not being a kind of a sort of mouthy id of uh, older, you know, non-college educated white men. uh, If Biden succeeds, then it could well be the gateway towards uh, a more uh, Starmer inclined electorate, shall we say. But if he doesn't, it won't. So it depends, I suppose.
3: Glenn, could I just ask a question about obviously Starmer's or Kia Starmer's sort of leadership style? Because mm-hmm. one of the, the well, I guess the key adjective that's always attributed to him is forensic. And mm-hmm. um, I, I guess I personally, and I know a lot of people share this view that one of his, his most impressive attributes is the ability, his ability and the way he displays it in, in a PMQ setting. But that for me is something that the likes of myself or Matt or, you know, Richard or people like that would, what, who watch PMQs regularly get to see that ability in action. So I guess my question to you would be, what does Keir have to do to reach and kind of bring back into the fold, if you like, uh, people that were lost, you know, perhaps a constituents in, you know, in the red wall, in a vertical. How do you think his leadership style reaches them?
2: Well I think if forensic, I used the word competent earlier, didn't I? I suppose they amounts to the same thing. I suppose if forensic is base camp. He's got a hearing now and people say this guy looks like he can read a book, he can read a pamphlet, he can he can hold a meeting, he can hold the Prime Minister to account. I mean, those things are not necessarily a given, are they? Plenty of leaders of the opposition don't get there. You know, Ed Miliband never looked that competent to voters, although that was a bit unfair. They, didn't, they just didn't take to him. Now you've got to have kind of stage two. You've got to have uh, attack on the summit or you've got to have to change the image slightly. You've got to sort of turn on the afterburners to escape orbit. Um, and that, I think, is about some sense of who he is and some sense of a passionate attachment to ideas. Because here's where the Corbynites were right, although they didn't execute these things very well, to say the least, which is that if you look at a Thatcher or a Reagan or even a Jeremy Corbyn, you know what they're going to say before they open their mouth just because of the image you formed in your mind or perhaps more appropriately, your heart of them. And with Starmer, because he's clever, intelligent, as you say, this very overused word, forensic, I'm not sure that voters have that sense yet of where he really stands on the emotional connection uh, he has with them. And more and more these days, I think about kind of psychology and psychotherapy even as ways of thinking about how voters attach to people, because the signals you're giving them, they're way underneath the words and the policy. When you listen to focus groups most voters don't know much about individual policies. What they know about is your vibe and your heart. And I'm not sure he's quite revealed that yet because that's not really in his style, is it? Do do you believe, though, that could become problematic sort of moving forward? Because I think
3: at this crisis point, people really find that level of calm soothing. But I know a lot of people further on the left of the party weaponize that lack of emotional sort of, um, that emotional openness, let's say. and They sort of say, well, that means that, that's a reflection of the fact that he's not emotionally driven and his uh, ideology isn't driven by the right things and by proxy Jeremy Corbyn's would be or is or whatever. That's that's something that routinely is kind of weaponized against mm. him. So do you think that that lack of emotional openness to date could be pro- could become problematic in the future?
2: Well, I again I think I come in I'm in the position of being an academic of sort of saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure, which I'm not sure always uh, is is that helpful well what i'd say is i think voters can take to you if you are seen as someone who knows what they're doing you yeah. look at hugh gateskill uh, uh, his death in the early 60s or you look even at harold wilson they weren't particularly warm emotional figures they were seen as people who were emblematic of a kind of manager class a kind of science class the kind of coming men the kind of coming people of that era in the 60s or you look at know john major he wasn't seen as particularly passionate but early on in his premiership and he wins that general election with the most votes ever in in 1992 people really warm to that i think it depends on the fit between the the man or the person and the moment if we're still in a huge hole in whenever we go to a general election you know spring 2024 or autumn 2024 it could be that people want boring they want calm you know american voters have gone out and found someone who has always been there they've known him for what 40 years as the one of one of the youngest senators ever joe biden and although he is a warmer figure he's got kind of many more catchphrases and many more kind of ways of attaching you to his emotional story for instance the amount of death and mortality he's experienced Mm. he's also someone who just looks like uh someone who could be a president in a film and he has a calmer touch so if we're still in a crisis and we're going to have a long-lasting economic crisis. It could well be that precision and questioning and being good at giving a a, a very sharp lecture could actually be an attachment in themselves.
3: Mm, That's a really good
2: point. I I know you've written um, predominantly
4: about Keir Starmer himself. This might be cruel Mm. to land it on you, but other people may have thoughts as well. Um, Talking to John Camper earlier, I made a possibly cruel joke at the expense of uh, Annalisa Dodds, but it did lead me to think about the team that Starmer's got around him. Um, Blair, 1994 to 97, he either had people around him who were already established names or who very quickly became established names because of their media savviness as well as their ability in the Commons, of people like Mm. Margaret Beckett, Jack Straw, uh, David Blungett, obviously Gordon Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, Keir Simon doesn't seem to have that at the moment. Do you think he's doing enough to build up the team around him, or is it inevitable that people like
2: us will focus on him for the first year, two years, three years? Well, there are two things I'd say about that that make that quite likely, if not inevitable. And the first is, really, you can't make a wall out of straw and mud really that's a modern wall and the quality of what he's got available isn't that brilliant there aren't that many labour mps and 200 or so labour mps and blair had you know we're coming in over 400 labour mps and parliamentary life and public life as a politician is so unpleasant now that why on earth would you go into parliament and not be paid what you could be paid to say as a barrister or something or whatever it is you're in your career and basically be bombarded with death threats on Twitter. You know, why would you do that? And secondly, I think that the rise of the presidential uh, prime ministership, although that's a real cliche, means that the media is always going to focus on the leader. And indeed, they have since the 80s, you know, Kinnick versus Thatcher, two very, very colourful figures. On the other hand, I think Starmer, he does have some people who are quite impressive and voters to the extent they know who they are, d- uh, do like them. I mean, if you look at the work Lisa Andy's doing as Shadow Foreign Secretary, although the far left don't really like it, it seems to me that that's the kind of steady hand that actually goes well with Starmer's image. And there are, there are quite a lot of younger Labour MPs who are the coming class of Labour MPs who came in, you know, 2010, 2015, who are fairly impressive and who will probably form a different Shadow Cabinet as we move forward. It's very difficult for Keir Starmer, you know, a bit like Ed Miliband didn't have that many people around him because the Blair Brown civil war had kind of lopped off a whole class of rival leaders. The Corbynite uh, period, which really saw the shadow cabinet reduced to kind of sort of semi-tragic comedy really means that there's not so much experience. You know, that said, I think that, I think they are making progress as a team. It's just that it's very hard, as we said earlier, to, get any kind of impression on the news agenda when you've got these huge forces moving really in world history that we'll we'll look at in decades to come you know i will probably i won't teach but my my successors will teach
1: do you think glenn that um we've we've already kept you far too long but if i if i could just well we've got you here oh that's Um, all right do you do you think that he's got a a chance of being the prime minister next time around in 2024 or perhaps a little bit earlier
2: Yes, he has definitely. Uh, number one, because you never know what's going to happen, and you never thought Mrs. Thatcher would be prime minister in the in the late 70s. No, nowhere near as popular as Callaghan. Uh, Seen as very extreme, a woman prime minister was an alien idea to many voters, although most voters didn't mind. Uh, and yet, she was prime minister, and she was prime minister for a long time. He he does need a historically huge swing, a vast swing, to become prime minister of a majority Labour government with 300. 26 seats i think that isn't that likely because you'd be taking seats if you didn't advance in scotland you know like you've never taken before Mm. but on the other hand i think he's got nowhere near a a, a zero chance of becoming prime minister as a minority labor government with the support of the SNP, the lib dems the greens because if the conservatives fall below say 315 seats they have no allies at all and indeed i don't think the dup would might even support them now as well, having kind of betrayed them as well over Brexit. So, if he can get to 250 MPs, 255 MPs, I think he becomes prime minister. Unfortunately for him, of course, that's where his problems will really begin because he'll be he'll be nowhere near being able to pass legislation without Nicola Sturgeon and, and the Lib Dems and and uh, the Plaid Cymru and the Greens. You know,
1: do you think in, in that case then <clears throat> that actually? That, that B-plus for, for this first uh, first period for Kia is it, it, actually perhaps even better when you build up that we've got the coronavirus and we're going to probably see out full term with regards to um, the, uh, 2024 being the next election. Surely there's a long way to go and this is a marathon and that B-plus can quickly in the next year become a A-minus and maybe even an A-star by the time we get to 2020.
2: Yeah, and it's 24 an even <laughs> bigger. Well, or, or 2028 or 2029 because it's yeah. an even bigger marathon than you say. You know, Kinnock served two whole terms as leader of the opposition. Uh, Gateskill was leader of the opposition for what was it, seven, eight years? So it's a long, long distance haul. The Labour Party was basically left as a pile of rubble, and you know, putting some bricks together, which is what he's done, like building one wall amid the rubble is is a start but it's only a start and the kind of things we're talking about today like reaching out to all sorts of voters and we don't want to kind of caricature or typologize voters voters just want to see someone who they think listens to them and they want to listen to Labour hasn't had that since Gordon Brown really during the financial crisis and even his numbers became pretty terrible as his government kind of floundered in that crisis and just getting someone who voters are willing to listen to I mean one of my older non-political relatives would just said to me the other day, oh, i quite like to hear more from this Keir Starmer. I mean, that if that's what you're getting to, that's not bad yeah. for under a year where, you know, the Labour Party came to be absolutely despised in some of its traditional heartlands by the end of 2019. And although that will be the case with a lot of voters still, there is at least a dawning willingness to say, well, what's Labour doing? What's Labour saying now?
1: And is Boris Johnson the perfect Prime Minister for, for Keir to be up against?
2: Not necessarily, because although, you know, this old public school image and this kind of buffoon image that Boris has invented and now, you know, the, the wind has changed and it's stuck, he can't get rid of it. It's like, he's mm-hmm. like a sort of Sasha Baron Cohen character, isn't he? It, that that really hurts the Tories in Scotland. It can hurt the Tories with some voters. But look, he's just been able to easily beat Labour. And he beat Labour really at a canter without them trying that hard, without really even putting out a full manifesto. And Boris Johnson is a much more cunning politician and a much more clever operator than people give him credit for. He's just obviously done a Brexit deal that he was probably always going to do, having pushed things to the wire just to get a few tiny concessions to keep his backbenchers happy. And he's just done something he's just avoided a fate, i.e. a no-deal Brexit, which probably would have seen his premiership fall apart one way or another. So he's he's someone not to be underestimated in any way. Boris Johnson, the last few years, he's succeeded and succeeded and succeeded, partly because he has this vivid image that we've talked about earlier. You can always imagine what Boris is going to do and say. You might not like it, but he's a colourful outsider figure. And if Starmer gets defined as insider, ex-civil servant, lawyer, Londoner, then Boris can can roll him over. So he he looks like the perfect uh, opponent but beware the person who looks like the perfect opponent because they do the rope-a-dope on you and then they just knock you out.
1: <laughs> well, that is a, 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 a frankly terrifying warning, but I, think a very, <laughs> but I think a very pertinent one. Glenn, an absolute pleasure to have you on. Please do come back and join us again. I was really fascinated by, uh, by your piece in The European and, and I really thank you for your
2: time. Great, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me.
1: All the best. Thanks, bye, Glenn. Cheers, bye.
2: Bye.
1: Well, we've guest after guest this week. It, I guess it means that I can't ramble on about nonsense as much. You guys, are.
3: Huh? No, you can. I feel oh, like, I feel like people, would, people would miss would miss that. I was just sort of having a moment to think. God, those guests are so much more articulate than I. Am.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is it is. There's a there is a a, a a very noticeable improvement in the skill set when we have guests. That's not that has always been the case, though. Cash. So the listener is at least. Used to it by now.
3: I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I, I love having a guest on in the sense that it's an <laughs> educational opportunity, but also like one that's like slightly like, I sort of it, it centers me. <laughs> They're not I tuning in. above my station.
1: They're not tuning in for our expertise. We're just a friendly, okay, we're well, a voice. I, I was absolutely voice.
3: told the dream then because I was, I was told at the outset they were tuning in precisely for my expertise. <laughs>
1: Do you, they're tuning in because you're Irish.
3: <laughs> Not today.
1: Not today. Right, um, well, shall we take a little break and then come back with Cash and Burn?
3: From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archent, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash
5: Archent.
1: Hey, guys, uh, before we go on, I've got to tell you about free trade now uh, free trade we i've mentioned it on the podcast before and i am a convert i love it so basically investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term agreed yes, yes definitely yes however high commissions and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it pretty complicated uh, especially for beginners like i was meanwhile Trillion-dollar companies get built, and very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Now, free trade is on a mission to change that. They're breaking down these barriers, and they're opening up stock investing to everyone. Other brokers, um, well, and this was something that, t- that stopped me often from, from getting into this kind of thing, will charge you like 12 quid for every single trade, not free trade. They don't charge you any commission fees, so you can invest, and you get to keep more of your profits. Um, it is. It's re- honestly, it's really good. And the app is very easy to use as well. It is, um, and, it, and it's fun. It's actually fun. You know, investing made fun. Um, it is award winning. It's used by more than a quarter of a million people. It's FCA authorized and FSCS protected. That's a mouthful. Um, and it lets you buy and sell stocks, basically ETFs as well, investment trusts, all again without commissions. It was the winner of the British Bank Awards two years in a row, 2019 and 2020, for the best online trading platform. Um, it, it, the, like I said, the app is really simple to use. Any experience level from beginners to experts. Matt, definitely an expert in investing. He's a and gecko type. Um, <laughs> and you can start investing. <laughs> you can start to learn. <laughs> well, this is a perfect way. This really is. You can start investing from just two quid. That is it doesn't offer any speculative products so there's no uh cfds or spread betting or products with uh with uh, leverage uh, they don't do day trading this is aimed at long-term investing uh very transparent pricing model no hidden fees as i mentioned no inflated spreads um so there's these are the account types you can have a general investment account you can have a stocks and shares iso which is what i've got um you can also sign up for free trade plus which it's sort of the, the that's the sort of expert level, so more advanced,
3: so oh, op- max level.
1: Yeah, that this is Matt's level, bigger stock universe, and uh and also very soon they're launching the self invested personal pensions as well. So that is coming soon. So you guys, I've rattled on about this already. I can tell that you are ready to download the app, even to check it out. Even Over more good news
3: of a Fredo. Or Fredo two pound now. I feel like Fredo's cost two pound now.
1: Maybe, maybe, I think, I'm not sure they're that much. Not <laughs> Maybe the, the price of two Freddos.
3: Okay, two Freddos.
1: But there's good news because there's a special offer as well. Oh, nice. Go to freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. And if you register and fund your account, you get a randomly allocated free share worth between three pounds and 200 pounds. It could be Greg's. It could be Rightmove. It could even be Apple. I got BlackBerry. Um, so visit now freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. Now, one bit of legal thing that I must mention. When you invest your capital is at risk, the value of your investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. Welcome back. Um that was a nice little break. Well I took a I took a small bath. What did you two do?
3: I was with you. No, I was <laughs> I forgot myself for a moment and then realized like I can't just say stuff like that. No, like- you
1: can and, and let's be honest, Cash, me and Cash took a bath together what did you do matt uh,
4: th- th- <laughs> you sprung... <laughs> okay i'll be honest i have not You'll left my on... seat the the, on- the honest non comical truth is i have not left my seat so me and cash are
1: very clean and fresh now after our after our bathing session and you've just sat there sweaty i
4: have just sat carrying. here staring out of the window yeah. wait, waiting for you, waiting for you to dust off tub. the suds
3: <laughs> it reassures listeners it was a big tub
1: Oh, yes, I was socially distanced. Yes, absolutely.
3: Distance my, I, I, my family members listen to this. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, uh, no, of course, uh, j- just for clarification, myself and Cash have never even actually met in person, never mind, shared a bath. Um, and, and, uh, and if we were to, it will be sometime in the future um, because we are, of course, in lockdown three. Are you guys, how are you guys finding this lockdown compared to the, the, we had a mini one, but lockdown one, how are you finding it?
4: I think it's a lot worse yeah yeah I do I think I think the first one had a certain um novelty value I mean this is not original for but it did have a certain novelty value to it you know we went on zoom and drank wine whilst chatting to our mates and doing quizzes and and went oh my god look they're doing Sunday brunch via zoom they're just like us and um and there was something a bit odd and weird and wow this is you know we're living through history mm. and now it's just boring isn't it yeah, yeah
1: and, and as we've been on air and not massive surprise i wouldn't have thought but it will be a great disappointment to a lot of people glastonbury has been cancelled again
3: oh god that's gonna disappoint a lot of hipsters
4: i don't i mean i i don't anticipate a great deal going ahead this summer i, I do know friends who'd bought tickets to various festivals this summer um latitude etc Right off
3: 2021 it's 2020
4: yeah I, you know it, it was never going to happen i you know the news this morning the sports news was dominated by whether the olympics are going to go ahead the olympics mm. are not going to go ahead mm.
3: <laughs> can i can i just sort of say in terms of the, the lockdown i agree with what matt said in terms of like the novelty factor and the fact that everybody's making banana bread and having a nice time and the days were longer, the weather was nicer and everything. Uh, But actually, I find this lockdown a lot harder as well, which is quite something because during lockdown one, like I had like, I had like a breakup. So you'd think that like, that would be the harder lockdown. But actually, this one's way harder. So what does that say about me? The fact that I find that I find this one harder, but I think it is a lot of it's weather related i think and day re- like in the length of days so i think that's a big factor for me i
1: think as well cash you're making some very odd decisions like bathing with old men <laughs> uh yeah,
3: that would be slightly out of step <laughs> um
1: yeah yeah it's it, it's pretty grim and it? it's pretty tough but you know let's battle on there will be another glastonbury um i think i'm too old for Glastonbury. actually i'm not too old for Glastonbury. Glastonbury's quite an old, old festival these days isn't it not like when i used to go it was uh, quite young but
4: I, I've only been once and it was um, 2005, the year of the great flood. I mean, oh, it was, yeah, it was where people were actually swimming. It was absolutely unbelievable. And it was the worst weekend of my life. And I, <laughs> I, I, I swore then and there that I would never go again. And in the intervening 16 years, I've never been back once.
1: Well, I've I've been on numerous occasions, but the last uh, time I went, I didn't pay and had a uh, sort of access all areas, and it's very much easier when you do it that way. So I think it's highly unlikely I'll ever go and, and camp with the proles again. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, uh, yeah, it's it's great fun. Everyone should do it at least once. Well, went,
3: I've been once. I went, um, I think around five five years ago now, and it was really really good. But I, again, I wouldn't be dying to do it every, every year.
1: I mean, as I've got older, and I, was, I used to go to two or three music festivals a year as a young man, as I've got older, I have, I have just taken in latitude, which is a much more, um, you know, there's not a lot of walking, and usually the weather's okay, so you can sit down, it's, and, and the food is better, you know, it's very much a sort of older person's um, festival, and they have bands like Sleeper on. Oh, do you think, yeah. like you're
3: shopping at like rows and you only like fancy stuff? Like how did that work with you know your kind of festival? Like cons- oh cons-
1: god I- no! The fe- I mean the food, the food at um, at latitude. There was one day at latitude uh, year before last, I think. Oh, well, obviously because it wasn't last year. Um, I had what uh, uh, steamed lobster buns, and then what did I had? Something like a wagyu burger for my my supper i mean the the food stalls there are fantastic
4: i seem to recall the last time i went to latitude which obviously wasn't last year i don't think it was the year before year before that there was actually a mini waitrose on site
1: yeah that's the type of festival it
4: is Well, it's radio four in a field isn't it as they call it
1: well they do the they do penar's politics from from latitude on a sunday morning
4: (laughs) yes they do and i remember see i was by the tent there and annoyingly i wasn't on although i i, I have been on peanuts politics back in the day before he did his flitch from the beeb and i saw going into the, the tent was damian green yeah that the, the, and he was in a half man half, half biscuit, biscuit t-shirt. T-shirt. that's right he's a <laughs>
1: massive massive half he had his dunkel oh, praga oh. wicket on um he, there, there is pictures of that google it um he's a massive half man half biscuit fan um, and aren't we all a fine band, a fine absolutely. band. absolutely. Um, right then, from fine things like music festivals and Half Man, Half Biscuit to slightly n- less fine things, Cash, take it away.
3: Okay, so for this week's uh, Cash and Burn, I'm not going with, you know, one individual or even like a few individuals. I'm just going to collectively say the villain of the week is the 319 MPs who voted against the the genocide amendment so for listeners who maybe like aren't familiar with this particular vote basically what this amendment would have done if passed and would have allowed would have allowed the uk like the high court in the uk to basically determine if genocide has occurred in a particular country and then that would influence slash pressure the uk government into terminating any potential trade deals that exist that exist or would look to exist let's say between between the UK and that country. And, I, I, you know, the, the reality is, I mean, this was voted... Some of the people voting in favour of this, some of the biggest supporters of this are, are MPs, for example, like Ian Duncan-Smith, who you wouldn't necessarily um, say is the most, you know, wholehearted of, of individuals. But, you know, he was sort of really impassioned in the sense that he and his, you know, and the, the, the many others who voted in favour of it very much do not understand, and I agree how you could actually vote this down with any credibility and how Boris Johnson could obviously, um, I suppose, instruct his, 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 the party whips to, to whip the MPs in, in that direction. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, that would be my villain of the week would be the collective of 319. And it was a very narrow victory as well, uh, over 308 votes, who decided that such a clause wouldn't be a good idea because actually when we're making trade deals with other countries, know their genocide record isn't really an important factor I, i think that really uh stretches the 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 definition of you know humanity and really the justification for it was equally pathetic in the sense that you know the the uk ministers who lobbied obviously um against uh you know this amendment basically their argument was that trade policy should not be set by the courts but really i mean when you're looking at the possible commission of genocide um th- does does that really matter does you know does who you know creates or manages trade policy really matter um and yeah I, I just i just felt that in a time when humanity is so obviously um sort of stretched and compromised and there are examples day in and day out of how horrific the world can be i felt that all those who voted against that um amendment were are pretty villainous really
4: yes Crazy mixed up world in which uh, Ian Duncan Smith is on the side of the angels. But, um, yeah. you know, I don't think any of us are, are, are one eyed remainers and, 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 and credit to him yeah. for taking that stance.
3: Yeah, I agree. I was surprised, but I really do agree. He's been one of the most impassioned, you know, um, most vocal, you know, MPs uh, sort of obviously in favour of this amendment. And, and again, just the fact that you can sort of justifiably sit in say that it's not an amendment that should have been passed um there there is no credibility to that argument and really it just looks like they're putting trading opportunities and financial opportunities ahead of looking at the realities of genocide commission and that's just not palatable in my eyes
1: well that is um i mean a good villain a good villain to pick cash i think everyone will agree with you that that is worth highlighting um before we go and this is the reason i brought up lockdown three
2: what
1: what have what are people missing that you guys are enjoying because i know the listeners have liked our tips on these kind of things before is there something buried at the bottom of the pile on netflix or is there a book that people should be be looking over matt what are you watching
4: you know what? I, I mean, I'm not a big kind of boxer. I'm just reading Watch about it. German
1: politics all um, the time. I,
4: well, I, I do a lot of that. But <laughs> in the past week and a half, I dug out and it was on the BBC last year and I only caught the first episode and then kind of forgot about it. But I have rewatched over the last few nights, um, Out of Her Mind, the, um, this is Sarah Pascoe.
1: The story of Matt Withers' girlfriend. Uh,
4: the the, the <laughs> Sarah Pascoe. <laughs> Br- <laughs> um, I think it was, was it out of, it's not out of her head, was it out of her mind? I probably need to Google that now. Um, it was the Sarah Pascoe comedy, kind of satirising yeah. uh, relationships that went out on the BBC last year. I'm just checking this now. Out of Her Mind, yeah. Um, and it's six episodes, half an hour each. It's a terrific cast in there. It's one of these sitcoms. Um, and some people will like this and some will hate it. It's a sitcom where the characters know they're in a sitcom. Mm. So there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall and turning to mm. camera and acknowledging that they're all playing uh, a role. So it's kind of a standard uh, rom-com type show, whilst knowing that it is at the same time. And it's very clever, and I think it will divide people, but it's well worth checking out.
1: I really liked sticking with iPlayer. Um, celebrity in the twenty-first century. Has anyone watched that? It's four-part sort of documentary about how, um looking back, I guess at the last twenty years of, of celebrity culture. So you know, from the the beginning of Big Brother to you know, through to the Kardashians. And it's it's really fascinating, especially as a as a journalist and you know looking at how we've re- we reported on these uh these stories and how ordinary people um you know became huge commodities and lots of stuff I'd forgotten about you know that that uh for example um do you remember they did a celebrity big brother and they put a non celebrity in the yeah. house oh, Dantel Houghton, I think, who ended That's up marrying right. Preston from The Ordinary Boys.
3: Oh, yeah, he's that, that guy. From, is he from Brighton? Am
1: I... Yes, I think, I think oh. he is, yeah. And, and they, the, the, uh, they sort imagine. of analysed it as, you know, the, um it went in as an ordinary person and, and her prize was to be a celebrity. You know, and they speak to her now and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's a really good interview. We like Gareth Gates as well um who uh you know i thought that some re- really really interesting stuff. it's a really good series that really Ooh, good series
4: Check i think that out. The, there was also the opposite uh, in that series because she was a a non-celebrity who came out as celebrity and one of the celebrities in that series if i recall was Maggot from goldie looking chain who i believe <laughs> is now an estate agent in newport <laughs> really that's funny. so yeah
1: well, there we go. Goldie looking chain. There's an album you can listen to during lockdown. Cash, what are you watching?
3: I have got sort of like a couple of things that I'm watching slash reading. One serious, one like an absolute pestake. So I'm reading, well, I'm rereading because it's just so, so good. Um, Natives by Akala. I don't know if either of you have read it, Um but it's by Akala who's obviously the, the musician stroke, um, I suppose, like poet slash spoken word artist, I guess you would, would categorise him as, but he's from... Um, He's from London, but he's got sort of like mixed heritage background. And he, um, natives, is the, it was his first book, and it's all about you know the sort of the structural systemic uh, racism and prejudice that he sort of endured and sort of I guess um, was subdu- subject subjected to, pardon me, um, growing up, and how it's informed his entire career trajectory today. And it really goes, it really sort of strips, uh, sort of strips and breaks down every aspect of sort of you know the structures within society that create this systemic racism and it's 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 fascinating in the sense that i only read it for the first time of around a year ago but I, already i wanted to go back around and read it again so that's what i'm rereading at the moment and um that's like the serious entry and then as a my my friend and i the other day watched um a, a sort of a like a conspiracy theory documentary like so ridiculous that it's not even showing on youtube because it's clearly not it, it clearly has to be It clearly isn't able to be shown um, on any kind of legitimate platform. It's to do with um, what's called the Big Reset. I don't know, have either of you heard of this? The Big Reset, in terms of a COVID conspiracy? Very brief. Basically, the whole theory is that Wuhan released the virus because China, as a superpower in the world that wants to basically dominate with 5G, they wanted to basically precipitate and accelerate the process by which the world would have to do a massive fundamental reset, i.e. post-pandemic. And basically, their whole argument was that Wuhan purposely released COVID to speed this up so that in like 10 years, we'll all be controlled by 5G and AI. And it's absolutely wild. I don't smoke marijuana, but I felt like I was stoned as F when I watched it
1: i thought at the start there you said Wu Tang released the COVID, <laughs> which which would have been even you know even more wild. The Wu Tang Clan
3: are, this week. You know, Matt, uh... going to I got the Wu Tang Clan scoop. Uh, Wuhan as well. I, I didn't remember that as well as I could have done. Wuhan, pardon me.
1: Okay, well there you go. I would suggest checking all those out. Apart from that madness that you obviously have to go <laughs> on the dark web to watch. Yeah, but, I paid it uh...
3: with Bitcoin. So I <laughs>
1: And of course, on Monday, John Preston's *Fall: The Last Days of uh, Robert Maxwell* is out, and I'm told it's an absolute stonking read. So get on, uh, get, go to an independent bookseller and uh, buy that on Monday. Um, that is it from us for this week. If you haven't already gone by the print product, um, check if, out if, the website.
4: We've promoted other people's articles oh. this week. I'd just like to say uh, this week's edition has got my interview yeah. with the former FBI director James Comey. Uh, who I had a good chat with last week and I'm, uh, I think you'll enjoy the interview. I read
3: it this morning. It's very
4: good. Did
1: okay. you ask him about any conspiracy theories about
4: the Wu-Tang clan? I, I <laughs> completely neglected the whole Wu-Tang, uh, <laughs> the, the Wu-Tang reason.
3: he looked in <laughs>
4: Ashboy's
1: <laughs> Wu-Tang clan theory. He's gonna do big stuff on social I'm media, media this
3: week. Tape off now and, all, and then I'm gonna be arrested <laughs> for some sort of like conspiracy theory like propaganda.
1: Or oh god, let's try and get your Twitter taken down. That would be no! hilarious. No.
3: Oh. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, it would be nothing without you. Thank you for tuning in in your thousands every week. We will return next week. Until then. Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go.